Pastor Mel was just saying is true. We're just wrapping up our Do You Even Bible series, and I'm pumped to be, I guess, putting, putting the bookend to that with uh, Can You Even Trust the Bible? And um, this book, the Bible, over the past 3,200 years, this book has been the most loved and the most hated book in existence. Everyone from Roman emperors to communist rulers issued laws ordering its destruction. Millions of this book have been burned. People have risked their lives smuggling this book into countries where it's illegal. Countless Christians are persecuted or even executed even today for the crime of owning this book. It's banned in so many countries and yet desperately sought by persecuted Christians around the world. Even in free countries, it's been rejected and challenged, thrown out of our schools. The American Library Association recently revealed that this book is among the most challenged books with many Americans calling for it to be banned or removed from libraries. Now, th those same people will say that this is just a book. So why ban it? Why destroy it? Why persecute people for it? The reality is this is the most significant book in history. Its influence on the world is unquestionable. But why? Why is it so significant? Why is it so sought after? Why is it so despised? What's so special about the Bible? How do we know it's not just another piece of ancient literature? The Bible tells us that it's the Word of God. Is that true? Because if it's not true, let's chuck it out and find another religion that actually works. Like if this thing isn't true, if what it says is not true... We can't believe any of it because our whole foundation of our faith is built on this book. So, can we even trust the Bible? To answer that big question, I've got to ask a few smaller questions. And those smaller questions are, number one, is it accurate? Number two, is it true? Number three, is it consistent? And number four, is it supernatural? So we're going to run through those questions and try and answer them tonight. Is that cool? All right. Number one, is the Bible accurate? Now, let me explain what I'm talking about here. Before we even consider what's in this book, what it says, we need to make sure that the Bible that we have today is actually the same as the Bible that was originally written. Because again, if it's different, if it's not the same, if what we're reading today is not actually what was originally written, then chuck it out. It's worthless to us. But the opposite is actually true. And we have the manuscripts to prove it. Now, before I talk about manuscripts, I just want to do a little bit of a side step. Oh, I can barely see you through the cloud there. <laughs> I can see you guys great. I just want to do a little bit of a side step for a second and explain what I'm talking about when I say manuscript. Because a lot of us believe, you know, when you think of the word manuscript, you think, okay, someone's written a book, they've typed it up, and then it's a manuscript, and they send the manuscript off to the publisher to be published, right? That's what we think when we think the word manuscript. But scholars of ancient literature, they have another kind of meaning for this word, manuscript. And what it is, is that the printing press was invented in 1455. Prior to that, if they wanted to distribute books, they had to copy them by hand. Not like this, because I'm not left-handed. It would have been like that, right? They had to copy them by hand and distribute it that way. And these handwritten copies, prior to the printing press, are called manuscripts. So when I'm talking about manuscripts today, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the copies of the Bible prior to the printing press. 
You see, when it comes to ancient literature, whether you're looking at the writings of Plato and Aristotle or whether you're looking at the ancient literature of the Bible, we don't actually have the original document of any of it. All we have are the copies. All we have are the manuscripts. And so the best way to make sure that our piece of literature, whether it's the Bible or Plato, Aristotle, or Julius Caesar's writings, whatever, the best way to work it out is to go, okay, let's find the oldest manuscript, the one that's closest in time to the original, because that's the one that's most likely to be accurate. So let's have a look at the Old Testament. For many years, the oldest Hebrew copy of the Old Testament was a manuscript called the Masoretic Text, and it was dated around 980 AD. And so the goal of researchers was to make sure that our modern Bible that we have today matched the Masoretic text. It was the oldest version, the oldest manuscript that we had. So researchers were like, okay, well, let's make sure that what we have today matches that. The problem is that 980 AD is still about 1,500 years after the original Old Testament was written. And so researchers and scholars and translators are just kind of hoping that the Masoretic text was accurate. Because if it wasn't, we had no way of knowing, right? But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy found the first of what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Between 1947 and 1956, archaeologists found around 900 scrolls in 11 caves surrounding the Dead Sea. And these scrolls are the oldest biblical manuscripts ever discovered. In fact, they date from 300 years before Christ, 300 BC, all the way up to the time of Jesus. Scholars believe that they were hidden in these caves above the Dead Sea in about 68 AD because people could see what was coming. They could see, you know, the signs of the times and they knew that destruction was coming. There'd been too many rebellions, too many uprisings and the Jewish people knew that something was going to happen. It wasn't going to last forever and the Roman army were going to come in and deal with them. And this happened two years later. In 70 AD, the Roman army came in, completely destroyed Jerusalem, completely destroyed the temple, and the Jewish people were scattered across the world. That happened in 70 AD. They believe that these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were hidden in the caves two years before that to protect our Bible. And these scrolls remained in the caves undiscovered for almost 2,000 years. They were found one year before the birth of the modern nation of Israel in 1948, which even that I find mind-blowing. Isn't it incredible? They were hidden just before the nation of Israel was destroyed and scattered, and they were found just before the nation of Israel was reborn. These scrolls include every single Old Testament book except Esther. There are 25 copies of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the Psalms, 19 copies of Isaiah, and the oldest Isaiah scroll among the Dead Sea Scrolls is a thousand years older than any other manuscript of Isaiah ever found. And so scholars obviously got really excited because the Masoretic text was from 980 AD and suddenly they've got scrolls from 300, 200 BC before Christ. And so the first thing they want to do is go, okay, well, let's compare Masoretic text to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's see how accurate our Bible actually was. And they find that they're virtually identical. 1,500 years apart, virtually identical. And the beautiful thing of it is that the Dead Sea Scrolls are now the standard that translators use to make sure that our modern Bible is accurate. 
So when they're translating the Old Testament, they're using the Dead Sea Scrolls as their guideline. Now just think about it for a second. The Dead Sea Scrolls dating from 300 BC through to the time, just past the time of Jesus. What this tells us is that the Bible that Jesus read is the same Bible that was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those Dead Sea Scrolls are now our plumb line, our standard for our Old Testament, which means that our Old Testament that we read today is the same Old Testament that Jesus read. That's pretty cool. What about the New Testament? This gets even better. Because remember, the goal is to make sure our modern text matches the ancient text, all right? And the more manuscripts you have, the more likely you have, the more likelihood you have of getting it right. Because if all the manuscripts agree, then you go, okay, we're on to a good thing here, right? And the other thing is that the older the manuscripts are, the closer in time they are to the original, again, the more likely they are to be correct. I'm going to start by giving you an example of another ancient writer, a guy called Plato. You may have heard of him. Scholars believe that um, there's some literature by Plato called Plato's Tetralogies, and they were written, they reckon, around 400 BC. So just remember that, 400 BC. But the oldest manuscript, the oldest copy of that writing is dated 895 AD. So again, 1,500 years later. And the total number of manuscripts they have is 210. So let's just compare this to the New Testament for a second. How many manuscripts do we have when it comes to the New Testament? 25,000 compared to 210 for Plato. The New Testament manuscripts date as early as 125 AD. Now, to give you some perspective, the book of Revelations was written in 95 AD. So we're talking a 30-year gap between when the Bible was finished being written and the oldest copy that we have. The Gospels were written around the 50s AD. So we're talking an 80-year gap. So between 30 and 80-year gap between our original document and the oldest copy we have compared to a 1,500-year gap between Plato's writings. And people aren't going around questioning the accuracy of Plato's writings. Manuscripts of the New Testament have been found scattered from Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy in multiple different languages. These manuscripts are identical. In fact, there's debate about the accuracy of 0.5% of the manuscripts. And these manuscripts are what scholars use to translate our New Testament. Here's what I love. I said a second ago that there's debate over 0.5% of those manuscripts. In fact, there's two portions of the New Testament that scholars are actually unsure about. There's a portion in Mark chapter 16, and there's a portion in John chapter 8. And it's amazing because people often will get a little bit like, oh, oh, they don't know. Why, why don't they know if it's accurate? But it's actually another great reason to trust the accuracy of the Bible. Let me explain. Here's these two passages where they're not sure whether it's accurate. Where they're not sure whether the original manuscripts actually had these passages. And so if you look in your Bible at Mark 16 or John chapter 8, you will see a little note in the margin that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not have this passage. And basically they're saying, look, we're not 100% sure whether this next little passage of Scripture was in the original. So we're telling you. So what that means is when they're unsure, they tell us. And there's only two passages where they say they're unsure. Isn't that amazing? It means we can confidently trust all of the New Testament. 
We can trust that the Bible we have today is the Bible that Jesus and the early church read and lived and relied on. In fact, if you read the writings of the early church fathers, now the early church fathers, it's kind of talking the next generation from the apostles. So we're not talking the New Testament church, we're talking just after the New Testament, these early church fathers, around 100 AD to about 300 AD. And if you read their writings, you will see that the New Testament is quoted in their writings 32,000 times. Scholars actually say that even if we didn't have the number of manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, we could pretty much piece together what the New Testament says based on these quotes from the early church fathers. So we can actually be very confident that the Bible that we read is accurate to the original all those thousands of years ago. Is the Bible accurate? Yes. We have far more proof of the Bible's accuracy to the original than we do for any other ancient literature. This shouldn't actually be a surprise to us. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Which brings us to question two. Is it true? Now, just for a second, we're going to forget all about the miracles. We're going to forget all about the supernatural stuff. Let's not even look at that right now. Let's just look at the Bible from a historical perspective. Is it an accurate portrayal of history? Or is it biblical mythology in the same way that you have Roman and Greek mythology? Does it describe real places, real people, real events? Because see, if it doesn't connect to real life history that we know actually happened, if we can't believe the normal everyday depictions of history in the Bible, then how are we going to believe the supernatural stuff? There's an argument by a lot of people that this book is just a bunch of myths. The problem with that argument is the thousands of archaeological discoveries that have proven the Bible to be correct in an area where it was previously thought to be wrong. In other words, there's passages, that there's parts of the Bible which will mention a person or a place or a thing that happened, and it's the only, the only place it's mentioned is in the Bible. And so scholars and skeptics are like, well, it's only in the Bible, it's not anywhere else in the rest of history, there's no other evidence for it, so the Bible's wrong. And then they make this archaeological discovery and go, oh, the Bible was right. Let me give you some examples. The first one will surprise you, I think. King David, until 1993, there was actually no evidence for the existence of King David outside of the Bible. Skeptics claimed that David actually never existed outside of mythology. However, in 1993, they found a 3,000-year-old inscription that referred to David as the king of Israel. Time magazine actually wrote about it. Time magazine said this, The skeptics claim that King David never existed is now very hard to defend. I'll give you another example. Pontius Pilate is another character that's not mentioned outside of the Bible, but who very famously sentenced Jesus to death on the cross in the Bible. Finally, in 1961, archaeologists were investigating the ruins of this Roman theatre, and they found an inscription in Latin dating to the time of Jesus that mentioned Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, which is exactly as he's described in the Bible. Here's another one. For years... Critics actually said that crucifixions never happened in Israel. There was evidence for crucifixions all through the Roman Empire, but no evidence for crucifixions in Israel. And so skeptics declared that the gospel accounts of Jesus actually being crucified were either inaccurate or flat out made up. 
until 1968 <laughs> when they discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery containing the bones of men who were killed in AD 70 when, Roman, when the Roman army came in and destroyed Jerusalem. One of the skeletons still had the iron spike through his, the bone of his foot from when he was crucified. Proof that crucifixions happened in Jerusalem, just as the Bible said. The city of Nineveh, that you may know if you've heard of the story of Jonah and the whale, and he's meant to, he sent to Nineveh to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was destroyed so completely, which ironically is exactly what God had predicted was going to happen, destroyed so completely that for many hundreds of years, scholars did not believe it had ever existed at all. Then in the mid-1800s, the ancient ruins of the city of Nineveh were discovered. And since then, excavations have discovered an extensive Assyrian library <laughs> full of, the, of history that backs up the biblical history of the time, naming the Assyrian kings by name, the same ones that are named in the Bible, naming the kings of Israel and Judah and Egypt, the same ones named in the Bible. And it describes history, the same as in the Bible, <laughs> just from the Assyrian perspective. One of the most respected ancient Jewish historians was a guy called Flavius Josephus, and I know I've said that wrong. He wrote more than, he, he, he wrote a whole lot of history about the Jewish people around the time of Christ. He mentions more than a dozen people in his histories that are also mentioned in the Bible. For example, he talks about Herod. He talks about Herod's adulterous wife, and he talks about how Herod beheaded John the Baptist. And he also talks about Jesus. This is what he says about Jesus. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Now remember, Josephus was not a follower of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He didn't believe this. He was a historian writing the history of his time, and that history included Jesus. Just want to look at this from another angle for a second. If, the, if the, in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus rising from the dead were not true, if they were made up, if the whole idea of the, the resurrection was a work of fiction, if Jesus had just died and that was the end of it, and the, the disciples went, okay, hang on, we've got a whole big following of people here. What are we going to do? Um, I don't know. Okay, let's say that he rose from the dead. Let's go with that, and let's just pretend that this is what happened. It's possible, but is it likely? I don't think the disciples were lying when they told everyone that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'll tell you why. Both the Bible and early historical records describe that many of the disciples suffered persecution, suffered torture, and suffered death for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, people will often die for something they believe in, okay? Whether it's for their country, whether it's for their family, whether it's for their faith, people will go, for, go to their death. Sometimes people will die for something that is later found out to be a lie. But the point is that they believe it is true. People generally don't go through torture and death for the sake of a lie that they made up. They go through it because they believe it's true. And history tells us that Jesus' disciples, eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, went to their deaths believing that Jesus had risen from the grave. 
Let me give you some examples. Matthew was killed with an axe in Ethiopia. Close your ears, Joel. This is going to get a bit gory. Mark, <laughs> my 10-year-old's in the room. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria on the back of a chariot until he died. Luke was hung. John was tortured and exiled. James was beheaded. Philip was stoned to death. Andrew was tied to a cross and left to die. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. James was thrown from the roof of the temple and then stoned to death. Paul was tortured and then beheaded. Thomas was killed with a spear. Stephen was stoned to death. And Peter was crucified upside down. Were they lying? They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They knew whether the story of the resurrection was true or not. Do you think so many of them would be willing to go to their deaths, go to torturous deaths, clinging to a story that they knew wasn't true when confessing the truth would save their lives? It certainly points to the fact that the disciples believed it was true. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So in answer to our question, is the Bible historically true? Yes. Time and time again, archaeology and history has confirmed what the Bible says and proven the skeptics wrong. There's a guy called Nelson Gluick, and again, I've tortured his name, who discovered over 1,500 ancient sites in the Middle East. He's actually considered to be one of the greatest archaeologists ever. And this is what he said. No archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical evidence, biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Isn't that amazing? The Bible is historically true. Which brings us to question three. Is it consistent? This is an accusation that is leveled at the Bible a lot. And it's understandable. 66 books, more than 40 different authors, over about 1,600 years. So it's an understandable accusation. In fact, let me say this. You should expect inconsistency. A lot of it. Let me flesh out those stats a little bit more for you. There are 66 books that make up the Bible. But these aren't the same kinds of books. Some of them are history, some of them are poetry, some of them are law, some of them are prophecy, some are wisdom, some are cries of lament. There is, these 66 books have incredible variety of style and purpose. There were over 40 authors that God used to write the Bible. Some of them were kings, some of them were prisoners, some were educated, some were not. Some were shepherds, some were fishermen, some were businessmen, some were former crooks, some were Bible scholars, some were slaves. Some were doctors and some were even musos. Some were old, some were young. Some of them knew each other and some of them didn't. Wide variety of people. They lived across 1,600 years in multiple different countries and multiple different cultures, from Egypt to Israel, from Babylon to the Mediterranean to the Roman Empire, in slavery and in freedom. And they wrote it in three different languages. When you consider all those facts, when you really think about it, it would be a miracle if the Bible wasn't riddled with inconsistencies. It should be a mishmash of random writings that really make no sense. There should be no consistency. There should be no cohesion. It should contradict itself at every turn with the differing opinions of different cultures and classes and languages and people and situations and worldviews over 1,600 years. It should be a whole lot inconsistent. 
In fact, here's a thought. When someone makes the accusation to you that the Bible's got inconsistencies in it, ask them to list some. They might list one or two things if they've actually done any reading or, you know, not just spouting it off. And a lot, a lot of the time, those one or two inconsistencies they might mention are actually really easily explained when you read the verses in context. But if they say a couple, say, great, what's some more? You got any more? Got any more? Because if they can only mention a couple of alleged inconsistencies, that's not proof. One or two. There should be thousands. <laughs> the lack of thousands of examples of inconsistency speaks more to the consistency of the Bible than one or two alleged examples of inconsistency. Think how much the world has changed over the past 1,600 years. What do people today have in common with people over the past 1,600 years? The world has changed ridiculously. 1,600 years is a long time and the world changes so much. People in different countries and different cultures and different languages over the past 1,600 years. Yes, there's some commonalities. Yes, there's some generalities like love and friendship and family. Sure, that's consistent no matter where you are over hundreds of years. But the Bible doesn't just talk about generalities like love and friendship and family. The Bible wrestles with big questions. The Bible wrestles with the big issues of life. Questions like, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? Why does humanity exist? What's the meaning of life? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? What happens to us after we die? These are big questions. And these are the kinds of questions that people tend to disagree about, quite violently, actually. And yet these are the very questions that the authors of the Bible tackle head on, chapter after chapter, book after book. And the answers that Bible gives to these questions are in complete unity and complete harmony throughout the whole Bible. In fact, when you study the Bible, you'll actually see three levels of narrative. And all my academy students should know this. If you don't, you're in trouble. The first level of narrative is, is like an individual narrative. It's just all the basic individual stories that make up the Bible. Jonah and the whale, um, David and Goliath, Noah and the ark. These individual stories that are all the way through. This is the first level of narrative that you find in the Bible. Then you find a second level of narrative, and it's kind of like you zoom out slightly, and you see it from just a little bit big picture. And what you see in the Old Testament is you see God's plan for his people, the nation of Israel. You see how God chose Abraham, and you see how that then the nation of Israel was birthed, and how God took care of his people through the Old Testament. And you see in the New Testament the birth of the church, and you see how God took care of his people, the church. That's the second level of narrative. And then if you zoom out a bit further, you see the third level of narrative. And this is what we call the meta-narrative. This is the overarching narrative that, oh, that, that entwines all the way through the Bible. The meta-narrative the meta is a story of a loving God creating humanity for relationship with him, of sin destroying that relationship and breaking humanity, of a savior promised in Genesis and delivered in the Gospels, and an eternity in perfect relationship with, with him. This beautiful, harmonious thread of love and truth that is woven throughout the entire Bible, this is the meta-narrative. It is completely consistent and consistently complete through every one of the 66 books communicated by every single one of the 40-plus authors in every culture and in every language. This meta-narrative remains true and clear and consistent, and this is a miracle. People nitpick at one-liners and take them out of context to fit their preconceived ideas and in the process, they miss the beautiful consistency of love that flows from Genesis to Revelation. Is the Bible consistent 
You bet it is. That's why we have a saviour. That's why we have hope. That's why we have a future. Which brings us to question four. Is it supernatural? Here's where it gets interesting. The Bible is accurate. We've talked about that already. That's great. It's historically true. That's great. It's consistent. That's great. But if that's all it is, what we have is we have a beautiful example of ancient literature and history, which is beautiful and valuable and lovely, but ultimately empty of any transforming power. But if it's supernatural, if it's actually the word of God, then we're on to something. Because <laughs> that something will change our lives and change our eternities. So how do we know if it's supernatural? How do we know it's not just a piece of ancient literature? One of the key ways we can see the supernatural thread through the Bible is through the prophecies. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus? There's prophecies that he would be from the tribe of Judah. There's prophecies that he would be a descendant of David, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that his parents would flee with him to Egypt when he was a young boy to save his life, that he would grow up in Nazareth, that he would carry the sins of the world, that he'd be put to death. Even the way that he would be killed is prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Daniel foretells when Jesus would be put to death. Over 300 prophecies, all found in the Old Testament and all of them fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 45 prophesies the rise of a Persian king called Cyrus who would set the Jews free from Israel and he would finance the rebuilding of their temple that had been destroyed. And history tells us, not just the Bible, but history tells us this is exactly what Cyrus, the king of the Persians, did. Here's the thing. That prophecy was given before the temple was destroyed. It was given before the Jews were in exile. It was given before the, Brit the Persian Empire was an empire. It was given before Cyrus was the king of Persia. In fact, this prophecy was given over 100 years before Cyrus was even born. And it names Cyrus by name. Look it up, Isaiah 45, you'll see the name there, Cyrus. The book of Daniel prophesies the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, not just symbolically, but by name. 200 years before Alexander the Great ruled Greece, Daniel saw visions of the way that Alexander would lead Greece to become the ruling world empire and how the empire would be ruled after Alexander's death. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was prophesied. So was the rebirth of the nation of Israel that only took place 70 years ago in 1948. Both of these events prophesied in the Old and New Testaments. And these are only a few. These are only a handful of the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled. The chances of this being a coincidence? Zero. The only explanation is that the Bible is not just a book. It's the written word of the God who knows the end from the beginning who pours his transforming love into our lives and changes us from the inside out through his word, the Bible. See, the Bible is not just a book. It's a supernatural book. It's the very word of God to our lives. So our four questions, is it accurate? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Is it consistent? Yes. Is it supernatural? Yes. Which brings us to our last question, so what? If the Bible is accurate, if it is true, if it is consistent, if it is supernatural, if these things are true, this is no longer just a book. This is no longer a book that I read out of obligation. This is no longer a tick the box, I'm a good Christian duty. This is now the transforming word of God in my life. 
No wonder governments have tried and failed to destroy this book. I've given you a stack of information today. But if I can just be really real for a second, an ongoing battle in my life personally is with anxiety and fear. Has been for decades. And sometimes I'm great and sometimes I'm not. And sometimes it grips me and I can't shake it. And this week has been one of those weeks. This has been an overwhelming week for me. And I've felt fear just grip its tentacles around my mind. And I've struggled to sleep with the anxiety just churning over and over and over. So if I can be really honest, for me it's not a question of can I trust the Bible. For me it's a statement, I can't afford not to. I can't afford not to. See, in weeks like this, when I feel completely overwhelmed, this book is my lifeline. This book reminds my spirit of the promises of God in my life, that the perfect love of God casts out all fear. The truth in this book is truth that we crave like a man in the desert craves water. That's what it is to our soul. This book is life to my spirit and my soul and my mind, especially my mind strength. This is a supernatural book. This is a book where the God of the universe reveals his thoughts to frail humanity, me. This is a book where God shows me how much he cares for me. This is a book that answers every identity issue because I discover who I am in Christ. This is a book that brings strength to battle every temptation. This is a book that reminds me there is someone waiting to take my anxiety and take my fear and take my worry so that I don't have to carry it anymore. This is a book that frees me from my victimhood. This is a book that tells of the God who loves us so much he became us so that we could be free of the things that bind us. This is a book that reminds me that although it's true that in myself I can never be good enough, it actually doesn't matter because he's made me good enough. This is a book where I can build my life on a solid foundation instead of the shifting sands and the mocking voices of culture. See, when I feed on the Word of God, it counteracts everything that come against, comes against me. Everything in society that is lying to me and everything in my own mind that makes me feel like I'm a failure, this book counteracts it all. It speaks life. It speaks truth. It speaks freedom, it speaks mercy, it speaks grace, it speaks compassion, it speaks hope, and it speaks a future. See, when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us. The Bible actually says that the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's weapon of choice, is the Word of God. So when we dive into the Word of God, ready for God to speak, the Holy Spirit begins to transform me from the inside out. I discover peace, I find answers, I gain perspective, I become patient, I find my identity, I find wholeness, and I begin to become more like Jesus. And that's what it's all about, becoming a little bit more like Jesus every day. And this Bible, this ancient book, this supernatural book, says in 2 Timothy 3.16 in the message, there's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And look at this. Through the Word, we are put together. 
and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. So this book, which is accurate, this book, which is true, this book, which is consistent, this book, which is supernatural, this book that we can trust through the words of this supernatural book, God puts us together. I don't know about you, but I'm broken. I need to be put back together. And through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, I'm put back together again.